the Sunday, the second Sunday in Easter season, and the year of our Lord 2022. I'm, I'm sure you've noticed all of our hymns this morning have to do with proclaiming the good news of the resurrection, the risen Christ. And I didn't put this together as I selected the hymns um, this week for today, but I was realizing as we were singing them this morning that we are singing a number of ancient hymns today. The first hymn was written by John of Damascus um, about 1,400 years ago. Um, the hymn we just sang, Praise um, the Savior Now and Ever, is another ancient hymn written in Latin originally um, around the 6th or 7th century. Um, we will sing after the sermon before the table at the Lamb's High Feast. We sing another hymn written originally in Latin in the 8th century. Um, John the Damascus, of course, wrote in Greek. Um, just sometimes, and we just recited a, a, a creed that was written 1,600 years ago um, in Greek originally. Uh, it's just wonderful to sometimes think about that. Think about the way, how crazy it is that, you know, 1,500 years later, um, we are singing these hymns, we are reciting these creeds in a part of the world that those people didn't even know existed at the time um, that they wrote these things in a completely different language. Um, this is the power of the gospel, the power of the risen Christ um, as the nations are being brought in. And what a, what a grace it is, uh, friends, to be part of that story of the kingdom of God and to share in communion with the saints um, throughout the centuries, this glad tidings of the resurrection. Uh, this morning, after two Sundays, um, the past two Sundays, as we focused on Palm Sunday, on the death of Christ and the cross, and then, of course, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, on uh, the resurrection, um, we return now, this morning, to another ancient practice of the church, which is to preach through um, consecutive portions of the scriptures week by week, and so we go back to Hebrews I'm picking up this morning again in Hebrews um, chapter 12, uh, verses 12 to 17, the text that is printed for you on the back of your order of worship. Um, just by way of reminder, before I read the sermon text this morning, the last time we looked at Hebrews, uh, three weeks ago, we considered the first part of chapter 12, that uh, well-known portion of this chapter, where we found that the apostle argues that God is a good and loving father. And uh, the way that we know that he is good and loving to us as his children is that he, he disciplines us. It is his discipline that reveals his love, that he, because he loves us as a father, that he corrects us and chastises us in our sin, not for no reason, not because he's mad at us, but because he desires for us to be made holy, to share in his own holiness. In our passage this morning, the apostle continues on this theme of holiness and emphasizing now our responsibility in this process as God's children, our calling to strive for holiness, as the apostle says, and to look out for one another, actually, by encouraging one another toward our common holiness as a community of people who are united to one another. I invite you now to listen to God's word from Hebrews 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9, so we'll have a few verses of context before we get to the sermon text, which begins in verse 12. Listen now again to God's holy and inerrant word. The apostle says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. 
shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And now our sermon text. Therefore, lift your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Thus far, the reading of God's word. It is, friend, absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest it that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. He does. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I don't know all the details. I don't pretend to know all the details about what that plan includes. I don't know what it means in terms of who you might marry or what kind of work you will do or where you will live or how long you will live or any of those things. But I do know something confidently about God's plan for your life, his wonderful plan. And that is, if you are in Christ, friend, God's plan for the rest of your days can be summarized in this simple statement. God intends to make you holy. God intends for you to become holy. God's plan for you, friend, above all else, is that you would be made holy, that you would share in his holiness. Everything else, to a certain extent, right? Our our spouse, our our, our, where we live, our, our vocation, all of that is, to some extent, just noise. Those are peripheral matters compared to the one overarching thing that God has for you over the rest of your days, which is that you would become more and more holy. For God's intention for you and your holiness is ongoing. It is progressive. He intends for you to make progress in that holiness. Wherever you are today in terms of your journey on the way of holiness, 
God intends for you to be substantially further along five years or ten years from now if he grants you that much time. He intends for you to be able to look back on your life and realize I'm actually more holy than I was five years ago or ten years ago. The Lord is indeed carrying out his wonderful plan for my life. He is, in fact, making me holy. Now, now what does it mean for you to be holy? Simply put, it means for you to be made like God. For you to become an imitator of God, as Paul says in our reading from Ephesians. It means for you to take on the character of the triune God, to be conformed to his image, particularly the image that he has revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As the writer to the Hebrews expresses it in verse 10 in this chapter, God disciplines us for, his, for our good that we might share in his holiness, right? Not just some abstract idea of moral perfection, but actually in the holiness of God that we might be made like him. Or as Peter puts it in the first epistle, quoting from Leviticus, this shows up in the Old Testament, it shows up in the epistles, it shows up in the words of Jesus Christ. Peter, however, says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you, that is God, is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, and here he quotes from the Old Testament, from Leviticus, where the Lord said to the people, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Friends, to be holy is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit that has been poured out by the risen Christ after his ascension to heaven and to bear the fruit of that Holy Spirit which grows up in us and comes out as Galatians 5 teaches us as love, as joy, as peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is what it is to be holy. Often we, we focus on the cost of holiness, right? The the suffering that holiness requires, the, the putting to death, the mortification of sins, the giving up of worldly pleasures that are false, all of which is, of course, necessary for holiness. And indeed, friends, there are many things that we must give up to be made holy. But whatever we lose, I want you to hear this, whatever you lose on the way of holiness is nothing compared to what you gain. There is no better life for you, friend, than a life of holiness. To be made holy, to become mature, to actually be wise and not foolish, to be made like Jesus, to participate more and more fully in the life of God, friends, that is its own reward. And it is the sweetest thing that is available to you in this life. There is nothing better, nothing more valuable. And indeed, there is a deep and profound beauty to the holiness that God intends for us. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, the psalmist says. The beauty of it. It is attractive, the kind of holiness that God calls us into. And friends, if you think about 
for a few minutes the holy people that you have known in your life, right? Those men or women who have truly progressed in their holiness over the years. There's a kind of settledness about those people. A kind of contentment. A kind of quiet confidence and humility. It's as though they have become, even as the psalmist describes, like great and mighty trees planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in every season, that they have become like leaves whose, whose who, trees, rather, whose leaves do not wither. That, that's who they are. They're these great cedars of Lebanon planted in the courts of God, bearing fruit. There's that kind of beauty, that kind of strength, that kind of settledness, the holiness. Friends, as our scripture passage this morning makes clear, this process that God intends for us, that is to be made holy, it's not only something that we are to hope that he will do in us, but it's also something that we are called to participate in. There is a calling to holiness. The apostle puts it in this way. He has a number of imperatives here, right? Therefore, therefore meaning God's promise to discipline you and to make you holy, right? He doesn't say, therefore, just sit back and wait and see what God does. No, he says, therefore, this is what you ought to do. In verses 12 to 14, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed strive for peace with everyone the apostle says and for the holiness without which no one will see the lord without which no one will see the lord strive for holiness the apostle says Reach for it, right? And how do we strive in this way? By lifting our drooping hands and strengthening our weak knees and making straight paths for our feet so that what is lame in us may be healed and not be put out of joint. Remember that the context here of these words is the discipline of the Lord, the discipline which the apostle acknowledges in verse 11 may seem painful or difficult in the moment that is experienced. The fruit of holiness is pleasurable, the apostle says, but the process of being made holy can often seem painful. And as this passage teaches us, often what is most deeply required of us as we are being made holy by God, by our Father, in his loving way, is not to grow weary and discouraged by the pain that we feel but to be steadfast, to be patient, to to hold on in the midst of all the things that God is doing to us and in us. The the image, the imperatives that the the apostle gives us here is they're they're visceral, they're, they're physical. Lift your hands, he says. Even if your hands are tired. Strengthen your knees, he says. Even if your knees are weak. In fact, he assumes that our hands are tired and that our knees are weak. 
He says to continue on the straight path. And in that way, what he is saying is that you are putting yourself or you're staying in the right place for God to do the work he needs to do, the work of healing. So that what is lame in you, he assumes that there are lame things in all of us, so that what is lame in you will be healed, not put out of joint. Right? That's what happens when we have things that are lame. Right? If we, we, we can be healed or, or we can try to you know, walk on our own and, and that just leads to worse problems. What he's saying is be patient. Allow the work of healing to continue. Remain steadfast. Lift your hands, strengthen your knees. Do not grow weary. The assumption that the apostle has here is that holiness isn't something that happens to us all at once. It's not how it works. But rather, slowly, over time, we're made holy. And often what is required of us, or perhaps always what is required of us, is just to take the next step today. Right? Just today. Just that step. Do the next faithful thing, all while resisting despair and refusing to step off the straight path that is before us. Friends, I don't know about you, but I find this picture of progression, of, of what it means to progress towards holiness that the apostle gives us, to be actually deeply encouraging. Because it means that being made holy is not about radical, abnormal experiences that we have to go create for ourselves or or discern out there somewhere. No, it's just a lifelong process of holding steady and taking the next step and remaining on the path where our Father can do His work of disciplining us and training us and teaching us so that over time, what we strive for will be granted to us, that we will be made holy that we will be more and more like our Lord Jesus. That is what is offered to you, friend, in the Christian life. That is God's wonderful plan for you, that you would grow in your holiness. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they will see God. This isn't some unattainable ideal that Jesus is speaking of. He's talking about what God actually intends to do for those who are disciples of Jesus. That we would, by God's Holy Spirit and in union with his Son, have our hearts purified and be made holy so that we would, in the end, be prepared to see the face of God. That is what you are being prepared for, friend to see the living God face to face. Often often we can think of this journey to holiness as something that we do on our own, right? It's up to us to figure this out. It's up to our will, our commitment, our dedication. But, But notice the argument of the apostle. According to him, this is a journey that we are on together with those around us, those in this very room are your companions, friends, on this journey toward holiness. Speaking to the community, the apostle says in verse 15, 
see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He's, He's speaking to all of them. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The, the, the root of bitterness phrase that is used here is a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 29, where Moses, as the people are about to go into the promised land without him, he warns the people of Israel against the danger of hypocrisy in their community. He tells them, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, right, the covenant that Israel has just entered into with God, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. What Moses and the apostle are saying is that there is a real danger for those who make up the community of God's people, that some in that group may be hypocrites, that they may be walking in the hardness of their heart and in firm unbelief while somehow trusting that their status as a member of the community will keep them safe, that they'll be fine. Then after quoting from Deuteronomy, the apostle goes on to illustrate his point by referring to the story of Esau from Genesis. In verses 16 to 17, he writes this. He says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, right? Unholy, the opposite of holy. Like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. The story of Esau is, of course, one of the great tragedies of the scriptures. There's no way around this. Born to the line of promise, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, Esau had it all. He was the eldest. He was in the line of promise, and yet he rejected the promise offered to him. First, by selling his birthright as the eldest son to Jacob in exchange for a meal, for a bowl of stew. And then by refusing, and this doesn't, isn't talked about as widely, but he also rejects it by refusing to marry in the line of Abraham, as his father had and as his brother would. Instead, taking two Hittite women as his wives, women of the land instead of, of the promise. This is what the sexually immoral phrase in Hebrews 12 refers to when it is talking about Esau, about his action in taking wives not um, from the line of Abraham, but from the the land, um, unbelievers, people outside of the land of promise. Esau's hardness of heart built up over many years, and 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 it resulted finally in his rejection of the promise and even his apostasy. Friends, verses 15 to 17 are sobering verses. And I'm I'm not going to help you with that. I'm not going to try to relieve that tension. These words should draw us up short. We need to take this warning, these kinds of warnings, seriously as we evaluate our own hearts and our own lives, just as we should take seriously all the solemn warnings 
against unbelief that are throughout Hebrews, and there are a number of them. And indeed, there are warnings like this, friend, all throughout the Scriptures. You can't ignore them. You can't get around them. They're everywhere. But it's also worth noting the way in which this warning is directed. It's not given primarily to individuals in this context, but to the community as a whole. Right? See to it, the apostle was right. See, it means by that all of you that I'm writing to, this church, see to it that not one of you, that no one, fails to obtain the grace of God. You see, what the apostle is saying here is that, friend, you do not alone bear responsibility for your progression in holiness, nor in your being kept safe from apostasy and rebellion. Now, he's saying that responsibility is shared by all who are part of the community. Your brother or sister in Christ is responsible to help look out for you, and you share responsibility for them. Beloved, this is one of the most precious promises given to those who live their Christian lives openly in the community of a particular church, right? Not just the the church out there, right? I'm a Christian and I just belong to the church, by which I mean just, I don't know, Christians around the world or something. This is one of the great promises given to those Christians who are living their lives out in the context of a church where they are known. That we are not in this by ourselves, but we're doing this together. And, and beloved, that means one of the things we have to take very seriously when we unite ourselves to a church community is, is this. It's, it's not so much, you know, do I like the preaching or does the, the church have all the programs for my kids that I think would be good for them? But rather, is this a church where other people are going to care about my holiness? Is this the kind of community where I'm actually going to be seen and known and where there are people who will actually help me to lift my hands when they are weary and strengthen my knees when they are weak and keep my feet on the straight path when they stray? Is that the kind of church this is? And, and beloved, I know that we're, we're far from perfect here. I'm the first to say that. But that's the kind of church that I want us to be. And I think in many ways we are, imperfectly, but faithfully, I think. A community where our holiness is a shared calling, where none of us are doing this alone, but all of us are are keeping an eye out for each other so that we might be protected against the root of bitterness that would spring up in any of us. And friends, for us to, to be faithful to this calling, for us to be a church like that, we have to understand at least two things. First, we have to really believe that holiness is what God intends for each one of us. Right? The, the Christian life is not some static thing, but it's actually something we're to grow in. Beloved, I, I worry that sometimes we drink far too shallowly, shallowly of God in this life. We are satisfied with far too little of what is offered to us. We're happy with just a little bit of holiness. When when God wants us to make us like himself, that's what he wants. And friends, he can do it. I have known people like that. 
who have been made holy in their lives. And I'm confident that you do too. God wants, as Paul says in Ephesians, for us to put on the new self, Christ. And to be recreated, as Paul says, after the likeness of God himself in true righteousness and holiness. That's what Paul says. That's how he talks about the Christian life. He is not being hyperbolic. He is being straightforward. You see, because God wants for us not to be satisfied with little sprouts of holiness here and there, but to be like mighty cedars planted in the house of the Lord. That's the image that Psalm 92 gives us so fervently, so viscerally. Like mighty cedars bearing fruit, even, the psalmist says, in old age. To be ever full of sap and green. Part of becoming a church like the one I'm describing is to really take seriously the calling to holiness that we have in this life. But but secondly, to be a church like the one I'm describing means that we have to also take seriously our responsibility for each other's holiness. This isn't some individual thing we're doing. We have to take seriously that we are actually responsible for and dependent upon others. We're dependent upon and we're responsible for one another's prayers. We're dependent upon one another's encouragement, on one another's correction. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor, he writes about this kind of community. He says, the Christian needs another Christian. I mean, just think about that for me, like how radical that is, right? To some extent in this modern age that we live. That the Christian needs another Christian. He needs him who speaks God's word to him. He needs that other Christian, Bonhoeffer says, again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, the Christian alone that is, he cannot help himself. He needs his brother as a bearer and a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother because of Jesus Christ. And Bonhoeffer says, the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. That's a profound picture of the kind of community that the church can be. That when we are uncertain, that the, the word of Christ coming outside of us from someone else, from someone who knows us and cares about us, can be stronger than whatever word that we can summon up inside of ourselves. I think it's undeniable that that is the case. And that is the gift that is given to us in the community of the church. Friends, this passage teaches us that we need one another. It is not an option to do this on our own. We need one another if we are to be made holy. And it is my deep hope that that is more and more the kind of church that we will be. A church where we are all together being made holy unto the image of Jesus. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we pray that you would help us to meditate upon um, the scripture passage this morning, upon what the Apostle is teaching us, that it might bear fruit in our lives. We pray for that fruit, Father, by your Spirit and through your Son. We ask that he would continue to lead us on this way of holiness. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.